because it was Ascension yesterday. Let me read you this prayer here from the hymnal. I want to read you two things. It was great. These two things are utterly contradictory, which always makes for a fun discussion, uh, from the same hymnal. This is the collect, so the prayer of the day for the Ascension. Now just listen to this and tell me if this makes any Lutheran bells ring or buzz or whatever they do. Okay, just, li just listen to this. Tell me what you think when you hear this. Grant, we pray, Almighty God, that even as we believe your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to have ascended into heaven, so we may also, in heart and mind, ascend and continually dwell there with him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Okay? Just hold it, because you're a pastor's wife, so you may know the answer already. Grant, we pray, Almighty God, that even as we believe your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to have ascended into heaven, so we may also, in heart and mind, ascend and continually dwell there with him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Good? She said it's life everlasting. That's a good start. Holly, what did you hear? Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, this is a prayer, unfortunately, that every Calvinist could pray. Yeah, because you remember, you remember what daily treasury prayer? I was a co-editor for that, so show a little respect, okay? <laughs> Although I didn't do the prayers, I can tell you who did the prayers because he's related to me. Okay, <laughs> yeah. It is. You remember? Um, yeah, by marriage. <laughs> I don't. Cl I don't claim that as my own. Uh, you remember? You remember what Lutherans believe about the Eucharist is what? Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, but he does what at the Eucharist? He comes down. Yeah, he comes down at the Eucharist. If you're a Calvinist or if you're a Methodist or you've got a Baptist friend, they'd have some slight variation, but ultimately at the end of the day, what's the action at the Eucharist? You go up. You ascend, they would say, in heart and in mind. Isn't that interesting? The, you wouldn't ascend in body because you're still here. Jesus is the only one who ascended... Yeah, I know. Isn't that weird? So it's sort of this warm fuzzy, and then you kind of ascend up to be with Jesus. And, and their great defense of Jesus not being in the Eucharist is, what feast day? The Ascension. Isn't that great? The Ascension. They use the Ascension to say Jesus can't be at the altar because he's locked up in heaven. Then you, all you have to remember is, Jesus does what on the night of his resurrection? Walks through walls. But he doesn't walk through walls like a ghost, spiritually. He says, Thomas, do what? Put your hands here. Okay? So he, with his body, can be wherever he wants to be. Uh, now, now, contrast that. This is important. Jen right now is thinking, I should have stayed in bed. That's what Jen is thinking. <laughs> but I don't care, because this is fun for me, and that's all that matters. Okay? Now, contrast that. Sandy Kahn is also thinking, I should be at work today making money, not listening to this guy. <laughs> Contrast that with the proper preface for the Ascension. Now, what's the proper preface? Do you know when it comes in the liturgy? Exactly. So you have the preface. Okay, You have the preface. The preface is, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up. So you have the preface. That sort of starts everything. And then you have what's called the proper preface. Uh, P. R-E-F-A-C-E. -E. Why is it called the proper preface? Because it's proper to the day. See what you're learning here, Jen? You would never get this anyplace else. When you look in the bulletin and you see the word proper preface, you're going to go, I know exactly what that is. It's proper to the day. So with every Sunday, uh, by season, it changes. So for instance, in Easter, it's, um, and most especially are we bound to praise you on this day. Um, for, for Advent, it's, uh, you know, John the Baptist, who uh, proclaimed that the Messiah would come, that we all repent, you know, pick your thing. But this is the one for the ascension. Now listen to this. It's truly good, right, and salutary. We should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's all the stuff you always hear. But now this is where it gets good. Who, after his resurrection, appeared openly to all his disciples, and in their sight was taken up to heaven. Now listen to this. That he might make us partakers of his divine nature, therefore with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. You catch that? Taken up into heaven. Why? 
that he might make us partakers of his divine nature. Now, what does that mean? Yes. Yeah, keep going. One with him, taking his body and blood. Keep going. Good. Okay, right. So he's restored to his proper place. And what is Christ? You know, he's, you know this from the catechism. He's fully God and fully man at the same time. So when he comes to the altar, do you, con- do you actually eat and drink God? Yes, you do. And God bears with him a divine nature. Now, what does that mean for you? This is very important. It's important for the psalm we're going to talk about today. What does it mean to partake of the divine nature? Oh, keep going, Betty. You're almost there. Keep going. He dwells in you. As St. Athanasius said, God became man that man might become God. God became man that man might become God. There is a process in the Christian life where you become more and more like God. It's as the Eastern Church says you become divinized. You actually become divine. Okay? This is very important. Lutherans don't often think this way, um, but it's actually in Luther, if you read it, and it's also in 2 Peter. Remember 2 Peter 1.4, he's made us partakers of his divine nature. Now, so you have the ascension. Jesus is gone. We move the candle back down. You know, what do, they, what do most churches do after they read the gospel on the ascension? What do they do with the paschal candle? They snuff it out. <laughs> so the Paschal candle, this is so good. This is why Lutheranism is funny. The Paschal candle, the Paschal candle stays lit all throughout Easter. It gets, as, as Pastor Schlecht would say, it gets lighted on the Easter vigil, and it stays lighted all throughout Easter. And then it gets snuffed out when? It gets snuffed out on the Ascension. Now, why does it get snuffed out on the Ascension? Because Jesus leaves us in the dark. <laughs> Isn't that great? It gets snuffed out in the ascension because part of Lutheranism believes Jesus leaves you in the dark. The other part believes, well, he's obviously not here. He's gone back to his father. All of which denies the fact that Jesus is more present now than he was before. Yeah, he does. But as David Scare would say, and I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm quoting him, not me, uh, Lutherans neither know the scriptures nor the power therein. Except for you, Betty. Except for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you're right. He's with us always. And you remember, this is very good, Carol. This is why I love you. You remember, he says he's with us always at what point in the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew 28, 18 to 20. What does he say all the way back? I think it's in Matthew 2, right where he finally starts talking. He comes to Joseph in a dream because Joseph is freaked out, and he says, your, wa- your wife-to-be is going to have a baby, and you shall call his name? No? Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then the very last verse in the Bible says, Lo, I am with you always. Isn't that great? Um. which shows his with-you presence is at the Eucharist. So if you deny that Jesus is still around, like when Lutherans snuff out the candle, in some sense, whether you know it or not, you're denying that Jesus is in the Eucharist, which is very unfortunate. Okay, Psalm 15. Aren't you happy you came, Jen? You'll be able to take a nap after this. Psalm 15. Have we done this one yet? I don't think so either, so that's good. All right, Psalm 15, um, shorter psalm, so let's read it, and let's just see what you, what you hear in this, and then we'll go from there, okay? But keep all this in mind. You're a partaker of the divine nature, okay? You're trying to get to a destination. Keep all those things in mind as you hear this. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your holy tent? I'm sorry, in your tent. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, 
He who does these things shall never be moved. Okay? What do you hear? Good. That's good. Uh, let's see. Yeah, there are about four things in this text, I think, in just these few short verses, and that might be number three. Okay? Yeah? Yeah? T now tell us about that. Good. Okay? Well, you might at some point. Yeah? That's true. He who walks blame. So it bothered you because you'll never do it. Yes. Now, I wonder. Yeah, that would not, that's exactly right. In fact, the vicar, um, is the vicar down here? There he is. I was actually going to give you a compliment, but now that you're here, I won't. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Everybody thinks I'm this mean guy. This mean guy. I do exactly. I don't know if that would be me. I think really one of two things is happening now. Either she's pooped or she's hungry. Or both at the same time. That's always fun. We had some folks over. We had Dr. Scale over for dinner, and we're all sitting down to eat. And I said, okay, let us pray. And I folded my hands. And as I'm praying, Bless this food to our good and us to your service. Emma yells from the other room with Audrey Nelson. I think Claire pooped <laughs> right in the middle of the prayer. So we, we give thanks for that as well. Um, what did you say? Yeah, but maybe he'll tag along. That's right, tag along. About the vicar. The vicar wrote a very nice sermon for the Feast of Pentecost that uh, he sent to me to tweak, and I tweaked it all down here during the scare thing, went back up and plugged it in, and what happens to the sermon? Gone. <laughs> Completely gone. Now, it was so well written that it needed very few tweaks, but all the tweaks were gone. Uh, but he's preaching on Pentecost, and Pentecost, the text is, does it actually call the Holy Spirit the paraclete? And the paraclete literally means, you know, sort of the come alongside. The same idea. And he'll give you a great sermon on that, so I'm not going to tell you about it. But it's the same sort of thing. It's maybe you can tag along. Uh, guess what? The Holy Spirit sort of tags along to you to make sure you can tag along to Jesus, right? So that's the message of Pentecost. But you've got to see all of that in light of the ascension. So Jesus has gone someplace that you want to go. How are you going to get there? You've got to tag along with Christ. Okay, that's good. Now, I'm curious because you said the psalm bothered you a bit because you didn't think you could do it. I wonder, I wonder if it bothers anybody because... They don't think they should have to do it. I'm not saying you. I said anybody. Because, because there are two different parts of this. One is people can read this and say, isn't this great? But gosh, I can't do that. And some people read this and say, i got to do something. You know what I mean? Isn't this true? People read this, i got to do something. Well, first it's about Jesus. So that's a good starting point. So you know it's all about Christ. He does it. You don't. Um, but this is what I said at Sunday Bible study, and I know some of you weren't there. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm really just having fun this morning. <laughs> no, is I? Yeah, on uh, on Sunday Bible, I've really tried to tone down my emotion as of late and be a little more sensitive to situations. Uh, no, as I led on Sunday by saying, remember, you're dead. Dead as a doornail. Um, you know, Ephesians 2, necros, until you're baptized. Then you're actually alive. So at some point, we can't say this is only about Christ. It is first and foremost, but it ceases to be only about Christ once you're a part of Christ. Then it's also about you. So this is your, and it's a valid concern. Can I actually live up to this? That's a real concern. But I think some people have a similar concern, which is, do I actually have to do this? Because what this psalm is saying, I think, is that in order to get to the holy mountain, this is the first point, there is a way which must be followed. There's a way which must be followed. Okay? Now, I just wonder, you know, sort of to Lutheran ears, how that sounds. 
There's a w- and I don't think it would sound foreign to all of you, but my guess is if you polled most Lutherans in the world and said, do you believe that in order to get to the holy mountain, and, well, let's just say this, what's the tent, what's the tabernacle, what's the holy mountain, what is that? Yeah, it's the church, uh, broadly speaking. More narrowly, it's what? Yeah, exactly. You can pick any sort of analogy you want. It's Eden, it's heaven, it's the church, you're right. And frankly, it's Christ. Remember in, in John 1, it says the word became flesh and, but the Greek word is skenes, which means what? Tabernacled among us. Okay? Tabernacled among us. Christ is the tabernacle. That's why simultaneously, as the temple curtain is torn in two, what happens to Jesus on the cross? Not only does he die, keep going. He dies, and what do they do to him? Jab him with a spear, and they cut the tabernacle curtain in two. You see it? Keep going. Keep going. You're on the right track. Yep. So what's it saying? Say, Speak in such a way that we all can understand, because I, I know where you're going. Exactly. The first line of this, of this psalm is asking this question. Who can live in you? Who can live in you? Now, it's not a rhetorical question, because that's simply an assertion, right? <laughs> Who can live in you? That's the question, yeah. Right? Yep. That's right. And uh, that's why St. Paul says, don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Yes, Holly. I I would this is Christ. Yeah. But obviously, as Jesus says in the Gospel of John, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But yeah, I, I'm speaking here. Who can live in Christ? That's the that's the real question. Because remember, on the last day, when the Lord comes back, he's not going to be looking for uh, all these people who have been sort of forensically justified, like Lutherans talk about, like, oh, you're a real damn sinner. But thanks be to God, he looks at you differently. He's not going to look at people like that. He's going to look for people who reside in the flesh of his son. That's what he's going to look for. Because at the, on the last day, who's the only one who's protected from the Father's wrath? His own son. It does seem a little odd. Yep. Yeah. Can't do it. I it's interesting because we did Psalm sixteen last week, which I had forgotten about till we came down here. But in some sense it's as though fifteen and sixteen run together. He who does these things shall never be moved. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. That's true. I agree. So good. So here's what we know. What do we know? We know we can't do it. Right? We know we will misuse this life. But as you know, and if you were confirmation kids, I'd say write this down. Misuse does not constitute disuse. <laughs> right? Just because we're all going to misuse the Christian life doesn't mean we just say, let's stop using it. So the question is, and that's oftentimes the way we think. Not we, but you know, broadly speaking, Christianity does. Ah, we're never going to get there. So let's not even try. But the proper preface for the ascension, this is why it's so important, actually tells you, you may not get there fully, but you actually have to try. Why do you have to try? Because Christ, who is God, puts himself into you and energizes you to live this life. So if we just say, oh, let's ascend in heart and mind to the Father, that's like, let's give up. We can't do it. Throw in the, white, throw in the towel. But if you say God drops down and gives you his own divine nature, he gives you who he is as God, he's the only one, as you said, who can do this. But he joins himself to you. Therefore, you can't give up. Okay? So the first thing, and that's why I asked your question, Carol, what is it? Is it more you can't do it or that we don't want to? I, I would hope it's that we actually think we can't do it, but yet we're still trying. Right? So there's a way that must be followed. That's why he says, O Lord, who shall walk? Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? He who, what's the word there? 
walks blamelessly and does what is right. Just let's just parse that for a second. What does that mean to walk blamelessly? Obviously, you know what it is to do what is right. What does it mean to walk blamelessly? Yeah, and you can only not be blamed. Yeah, if you didn't do it. <laughs> or if you don't get caught. <laughs> no, keep going. I know. I see. So really, this could, this could be translated as he who walks forgivingly, as one who's been forgiven. He who walks is one who's been forgiven and does what is right. That actually makes sense because the and there pushes you on. So you're forgiven, and once you're forgiven, you do what? Go and sin no more. Yeah, this is the discussion on Sunday morning about restitution. Right? Yes, good. So once you're for, so to walk as one who's been forgiven, that's a great observation, blamelessly. Walk as one who's been forgiven and do what is right. It is a very, yeah, and sometimes it's even cyclical. It sort of goes around and around and around, right? Yes. Yeah, he just walks straight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. He'd be a great tour guide, but it'd be a very short trip. Uh, I should write that down. That's a sermon illustration. Straight and narrow, thick, write that down. Yes, he would, great. He who does not slander with his tongue, I'm sorry, and speaks truth in his heart. What does it mean to speak truth in your heart? Yeah, exactly. It's not so much what you do here, it's what you do here. <laughs> speaks truth from the heart? Speaks truth in his heart. Well, either way, I mean, okay, so in your heart, one is you shouldn't have bad feelings, thoughts, whatever, and from those feelings or thoughts actually come words. And speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue. Now here, yes, good. In his heart, now what's the next verse? Doesn't slander in his tongue, which means if you've got it in your heart, it's going to come out in your tongue. To slander and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. That's interesting. Does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Somebody parse that for us. Read that slowly. One more time. Yes? It is different than neighbor. I actually think, I think when I looked at this, I do think it was more friend than it was. Because neighbor means you don't actually, keep going. It is. That's, I mean, that's part of it. But he says it, he says it uh, in parallels and also doubly for emphasis. So we're trying to figure out what the emphasis is. Yeah. It, yes. You know, Lutherans like to beat a dead horse. You ever been to a synodical convention? Uh yeah, it is. Uh, yes. It's one and eight, of course. Yeah. yeah. Now, the interesting thing is, if someone has done evil to you and you feel as though there needs to be reproach, you're probably thinking, what about that person? Are they friend or foe? Foe, exactly. Once someone does evil to you, we think they become our foe, and yet the psalmist still calls them a friend. Isn't that fascinating? In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. In whose eyes, so he's speaking about the person in the psalm here, in his eyes, let's say, a vile person is despised. That means flee evil but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own uh, hurt and does not change. Now, that's an interesting one. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. What is he saying there? 
who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Tell me about hurt. What does that do to a person? If you've been hurt, what does that do? Yes, sinfully, that's exactly right. Uh, well, yeah, if you, Jesus, would, Jesus would carry on and try to trust the person again. I'm actually I'm half paying attention because I'm trying to find a verse. But keep going. Do you have anything else? If someone hurts you, it means you don't trust them anymore. Okay? Yes. What does hurt do to you, though? I know it means you don't trust people, but you personally. Don't take the other person out of it. What does it do to you? Yes, it damages you. It eats away at you. It makes you less than what you're intended by God to be. Because you do what with the hurt? You allow the hurt to have its way with you. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's what it means. I think that's more of what it's trying to say. Don't yield under the pressure. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. So you say, to swear means you confirm it. You're speaking the truth. You say, I've been hurt and yet I won't change. Now this is interesting because my guess is that's not what you or I would often do with the hurts done to us. We wouldn't swear to them and not change. In fact, we would change and will we be better or worse because of the hurt? Worse. Now, flip your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. This was the reading at the Eucharist this morning, uh, and this might be of some help. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, into chapter 5. It's, uh, it's this great text about Jesus as the high priest, but I want to read, I mean, I'll just read these few verses to you, because there's one verse in particular that sums up exactly what the psalmist is after. And this is why you know it was not first about David, it's first about Jesus. It makes sense. Hebrews chapter 4, into chapter 5. Verse 14 should be the first verse, I think. So hurts done to you often have a negative effect on you. But listen to what Hebrews says. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That means he knows what's been, you know, what goes on in your own life but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So don't ever say, this is a temptation the Lord's never seen. Every temptation he has been tempted with, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And you know, Hebrews is one long sermon that's pushing them toward what? The Eucharist. So when he says the throne of grace, he's talking about the altar. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself. This is fascinating. No one takes the honor of high priest for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Isn't that great? The Lord puts men into the ministry. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now listen to this, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, just like you, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Now this is the best part. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So <laughs> salvation comes in what? And obeying Christ being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now that's important because what the psalmist is talking about is when he suffers. Verse 4 of Psalm 15, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. That doesn't sound like you or me. Because when we are hurt, we actually do change. In fact, I would say, oftentimes we become worse. <laughs> yes, or you want to hurt the other person back. Yeah. 
It's a very, yeah, it's a very printed, it's like if you've ever, I mean, maybe you haven't, but if you've ever been sort of, you know, antagonized by someone and then there's a fist fight, the fist fight is fun while you're having the fist fight, but as soon as it stops, what does the person who has been sinned against think? So you come to me and you're saying stuff about me and to me and you're pushing me around and we have a fist fight. When it's done, what am I thinking? That wasn't worth it. You feel worse. Because, you know, here's the thing. This is from Sunday Bible study. When you sin against me, now think about the psalmist. When you sin against me, who's in control in the act of the sin? Who has the power? You do. Yet once the sin has been committed, or as the psalmist says, once the hurt has been done to him, who's in control? Me. And if I retaliate, what happens? I lose control. I lose control. Okay? What the psalmist is talking about is regaining control of his own life. So he says, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Or as the writer to the Hebrews says, we don't know who wrote it, as the writer to the Hebrews says, he learned obedience by what he suffered. Now this is very applicable for our own life today. You can take the hurts that have been done to you and retaliate. It can make you, you know, worse off than you were before. Or in your suffering, you can do what? You can learn obedience. Or as the psalmist says, you can swear to your own hurts and not change. This is about staying the course, right? That makes sense? Okay. Verse 5, who does not put out his money at interest, okay, because don't, you know, don't take somebody else for a ride, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. <laughs> you see that in Chicago all the time. He who does these things shall never be moved. Okay? He who does these things shall never be moved. So we've got a couple things now in the psalm. We've got first, this is about a way of life. It also deals with where we are going. And that, you know, we talked about it. Christ, Eden, heaven, pick your thing. How do you get there, Maddie? Very first thing you said, obey. And along the way, keep the mountain imagery now, the hill imagery. What direction are you going, up or down? You're going up. Now, think about the last time you've been on a big hill or a mountain. Is it easier to go up or down? It's easier to go down. Why is it easier to go down? Because gravity, yes, gravity is in your corner. It's difficult to go up. Okay? Gravity is natural. It's easy to go down because going down is natural. Going up the hill is unnatural. Now think about the Christian life. What's natural for us? Yeah, not only to sin, but actually to go down. Okay, to go down. What's unnatural? To actually ascend. To actually become as we led today by becoming more like Jesus. That's unnatural. So the psalmist is showing you a very, very difficult thing in a very unnatural sort of way of living. But what he's saying is, this way of life is the only way. Uh, what's the very last line in the psalm? He who does these things shall never be moved. Exactly right. This is the only way to stay put. Okay? There way, there's a way which must be followed. Jesus, of course, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That way leads you to a certain place, to Christ, to Eden, to heaven, to new creation. Pick your thing. How do you get there? You obey the commands. And along the way, you're always ascending. You're not descending, which means it's going to feel very challenging and very difficult. If you ever say the Christian life is easy, that probably means you're going what direction? Down. <laughs> That's the only easy way. That's the only natural way. Okay? If it's hard. If it's difficult, if it incurs suffering, you know you're going up. That's why Jesus says he learned obedience by what he suffered. And obedience goes back to number three, obeying the commands. That all makes sense? Please not. If it doesn't make sense, say, okay. Mine too. 
Now, let me give you this, because my guess is, if you read this, what do you think? Law or gospel? That's probably what you think. Now, take this, and if you'd say gospel, you'd only say that to be nice. <laughs> it is, yes, if you've got, yeah, exactly right. If you've got someone helping you along the way, uh, like a good tour guide or someone you can, you know, sort of carries your bags and makes it easier, uh, then it's not so difficult. Let me see two more. Yeah, this is uh, this is supposed to say Mr. and Mrs. Gainig, actually. Um, my parents were invited to the wedding. I know. I wasn't even born. Scary, I know. Now, just look at this. The Lord Chamberlain is commanded by the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh to invite Mr. and Mrs. Bruzek to the marriage of His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, with Lady Diana Spencer at St. Paul's Cathedral, Wednesday, the 29th of July, 1981, at 11 a.m. Let me ask you, read the words there. What's so funny? I was just an afterthought. Okay, now read that. Just look at that. Is that law or gospel at first glance? Law. Why is it law? Tell me why you think it's law. Commands you. And if you ever read other invitations, it doesn't just say, we command the Lord Chamberlain to do this. It says, the Queen of England, Her Majesty the Queen, commands you to come to this reception. You would say that's law. I know that's not what it says here. I'm saying other ones do say that. Yeah, I agree. That's not what this says. This commands the Chamberlain to do it. Others say, Her Majesty the Queen commands you to do this. Yes. Good. So to the Chamberlain. Yes? And to you, good. Now, there's another one, and the only reason I didn't print it off was because I couldn't find it. But I have seen it. What's that? Yeah, right. There's another, there's another one that says, this is the point I was trying to make. You're right, this doesn't say it. But there's another one that says, Her Majesty the Queen commands you to come to this whatever. Okay, good. It's a, whatever, I don't care. It's a command performance. However, it's written as an invitation and what do you do she commands you in the invitation to come and you say whoa what am I gonna wear you don't say you don't say by God that queen better not command me to do that yes yeah right but now here's the thing even when she commands you this is very important even when she commands you it comes in the mail as what an invitation not every command is law when a command is an invitation, like, let's say, love your neighbor, do good to those who hate you, live my life, follow in my way, obey my commands, you're right. If you hate the queen, this is, this is a command. If you hate Jesus, it's a command. It is, but every invitation can be rejected, right? An invitation doesn't work by force. Commands do. If they come and bring the police and bring you into the party, that's very different. This is not a subpoena. This is, I want you at my party. So not every command in Scripture is law. Lots of them are invitation. You have to begin to see this psalm, and frankly the whole, I was going to say the whole freaking Christian life, the whole Christian life as an invitation and not a command. They're not out to get you. Okay? It's an invitation to a way of life. Now obviously, if you're on the outskirts of that, or you don't like Jesus, then it becomes a command. It becomes painful. But not every command is law. Okay? Do you have your hand up? Yeah, right. Right. I love that. Man, you are hip, Jeanette. <laughs> that was very, I was surprised. That'd be a good, like, as one of the Joy Groupers says, that'd be a good taser song. He means to Zay, but he calls it taser. Yeah. Now, welcome to my world. Why are we singing those taser hymns? I'm like, their song. How about at home? Okay, okay, I'm just checking. I'm, no, I'm just asking the questions, Kirby. Good. Good. So let's, so let's talk about your friend. He commands you for a couple of reasons. He wants to succeed. He's got a meet-up deadline. He's got to make the budget. He's got to whatever. Why else does he command you to do certain things? When he says, hey, you're doing too much, why does he do that? Cares for you. Appreciative. And at the end of the day, 
who does he really want to succeed? Not him. You. Isn't that strange? When there's direction and there's order and there's obedience, everybody wins. Right. <laughs> yeah. But remember, even Jesus, even it says in Hebrews, he learned obedience by what he suffered. So it's, if Jesus needs to learn it, so do we. <laughs> right? If it's not something that just sort of comes naturally, we got to learn it as well. But I take the point, and the point is a very good one, which is when there's obedience, when there's order, when there's structure. I'm not even talking about pastor and people. I'm talking about the Lord and his people as a whole. Everybody flourishes. Right. Because as the text says, the Lord chose him, which means it's his gig, not yours. In the world, in the family, in the church, every place. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now, um, see if there's anything else. You all have anything else? Anything to see in the psalm? I think, the, I think, Kirby, your point earlier on about how it seems to just end abruptly is probably a good one. Um, let's just read 15 and 16 together and see if that makes more sense. O Lord, who shall, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offering of blood I will not pour out and take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That actually works pretty well together. It's almost as though the first five verses, Psalm 15 basically, he's describing the Christian life, and then once you hit verse 1 of Psalm 16, he says, okay, now let's talk about me. Why? Because I know I can't do this on my own. That's why his first word is preserve me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that's all language of the tent, of the tabernacle, of being cared for. That shouldn't be two psalms. Nope. No, it should be one, it should sort of be one continuous psalm there. And the point of it all is, after you've been saved by the Lord, it is about you. But it's never about you on your own. It's about you connected to Jesus, okay? What else? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a very, I can't quite figure that out. I, thought, I actually thought a lot about that in terms of restitution. But it's a very strange thing when um, someone has sinned against you. There are usually, by nature, two responses. One is, um, we have no interest between the two of us in squaring it up. We just let it fester. And it gets worse, and people move or leave or whatever. The other response is, we try to square it up, and we want to go back to precisely the way it was before it all happened. Isn't that interesting? So we either don't care about it, or we think it's got to be exactly the same as it was before. Neither of those things is right, nor ni neither of those things are good. Letting it fester is not best. We all know that. But even in squaring it up, it's never going to be precisely the way it was before. Now, you hear this sometimes. If you talk to someone who, maybe you don't know people, I'm sure you do, someone who their marriage has been you know, sort of shattered by infidelity, Oftentimes they'll say, I want it to go back to the way it was before. Actually, you don't. Because the way it was before meant one of you was sleeping with someone else's spouse. Can it be better? 
yeah. But that takes a lot of painful dialogue and confession and absolution and restitution. It means you don't do certain things like you did them before. Um, so it is true. We, it's hard to think of them as a friend in the same way. But if you work hard at it, it can actually be better than it was before. But it will never be the same. I mean, I've said to people, um, and, I, and let me put this out there as well. It may mean you're not even friends like you were before. Everyone is friend. I take the point. But it doesn't mean we're going to hang out. I mean, there are people that have hurt me and my family deeply. We've squared it up. We've forgiven each other. We've moved on. They will never come to my house for dinner. They just won't. Because it was so painful going through the process. Um, no, because I don't think it's best for me and my family to be around that. That doesn't mean they're not a friend. But they're not a friend in sort of the, hey, let's hang out and have a drink kind of friendship. They're a friend in the eyes of Christ. They're not a friend the way the world describes friendship. And this is what you should be getting in this whole discussion, even the past 18 or 24 months. Everything you thought, or every, every time the world defines something, it's turned upside down and redefined by Jesus. Friendship, love, forgiveness, apology. We all thought we knew what that meant. We all understood it in terms of the world. Completely different in the eyes of Christ. I hope so, yeah. Because, yeah, because that's, because here's the thing. Because being a pastor is different than being a friend. Just like your doctor is different than being a friend. You can have a friend who's a doctor, but sometimes you have a doctor who's not your friend. Can he still be a good doctor? Yeah. It's exactly, and, and part of the problem is, especially in a, in a place like Wheaton, a community like this, very evangelical, they view their pastors as what? Friends. And you, this is very classic. How do you know that you view a pastor as a friend? That's part of it. Like me today. I'm your friend today. How do you say it, Beth? Call them by their first name. That's very classic. That's a dead giveaway. Either one of two things. Either someone feels like, I'm older, you know, hey, you're a young guy. That's one thing. But it's another thing, like, you're having a drink and they say, hey, Josh, what's going on? What I, and I don't, it actually doesn't bend me anymore. It used to. Not anymore. Uh, but it's kind of like that's a dead giveaway that they view you as a friend as much as they do their pastor. And I've often said to people, at the end of the day, you need me as a pastor more than you need me as a friend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Although I would call you Mrs. Smith. That's right. Well, that he, I, I was incognito that day. You weren't supposed to tell him I was out at Hallmark. I know, and that was like two weeks before Mother's Day, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Not like the day before. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, it, it, yeah. That's exa- it almost becomes like family. But, but that's, a, that's something we've got to try to figure out is what does it mean to be restored to friendship? Again, you have to think in terms of Christ and the church. When Jesus says, you know, when Jesus says, are you my friend, what he says is, do you love me? Remember to Peter, he says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I'm your friend. Finally, Jesus says, okay, are you my friend? That doesn't mean they hang out all the time. What it means is he's asking Peter, do you love me? To be a friend means you love someone. And how do you love them? You care for them. But more than anything, you tell them the truth. And that's a very, that'll be Sunday's Bible study. What does it mean to love? It means to tell the truth. Um, and we think of good friends as people who we can call up and gossip with and, you know, go out shopping with. Maybe not you, but you know, I know other people that are like that. That's not necessarily friendship. That's an interesting thing. Yeah, it really is friendship defined by, a, by an untruth, by a lie. Uh, there'll be something in, in the Bible study for this weekend where um, I even, I forget where it's, it's from Solomon, I think, where he says, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, but what he says is, I love you by telling you the truth. And he says to people, you lie if you heat, or I'm sorry, you hate them if you heat, heap lies on them. Now what you have to sort of decipher in all this is, were you the victim or the, or the one who offended? Because in a friendship, there are always two people, right? And, and when sins are committed, there's always a victim and there's always someone who's committed the crime. Oftentimes what happened is the victim is sort of brought into that and then what happens when it's all over? They feel just as guilty as the one who committed the sin. And we have to distinguish between the victim and the sinner. Because someone who knowingly brings you into a relationship, tells you untruths, gossips with you, 
that sort of person is the one who's at fault, not the friend who's sort of been brought into it. Because not everybody, real honestly, is able to decipher quickly and rightfully what's going on in the conversation. So it takes time, right? It takes time. But the one who does that, I would even say it is, um, it's more the manipulation. It's as violent as some of the most violent crimes ever committed because they do it knowingly. It's a very sad thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's exactly right. Completely agree. Yeah, <laughs> right. Talk about the weather. That's good. <laughs> no, that's that's true. Just because you're a friend doesn't mean you just call them and tell them every truth you've ever heard because there are a lot of truths you don't need to know. No, I completely agree. And by telling the truth, what I mean is you're willing to say to someone, you know, that's just not good for you. Like you'd say to Joe or Joe would say to you, hopefully, right? I mean, that's what a marriage is. Marriage friendship is not because you sit up and talk all night. That's part of it. But mostly it's because you can say to your spouse, I don't think that's good for you. Or let's talk about that and let's try to get through it. That's what a friendship is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's something. Don't go there. Right. Yeah, if it's not helpful and if it's not kind, that's exactly right. All right. Anything else? Augie, how you feeling, buddy? You feeling better? All right, no temperature, nothing else? That's good, I love you. Oh, gotcha, okay. All right, let's pray. If there's nothing else, we'll pray, and we can be on our way, okay? Because the garden club needs to get down here. <laughs> Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, thanks for your time.